it's a it's a massive state failure led by the president, but aided and embedded by members of Congress and also people in the administration. Hi, I'm Joanne Silberner, a features editor at the BMJ. I've been covering health and medicine for nearly four decades. You're listening to one of four podcasts we are producing about COVID-19 in the U.S. Today, we'll be talking about an editorial in the BMJ that got a lot of attention from readers when it was posted back in April. Gavin Yamey, one of the authors, is here, not in person, of course, but thanks to Zoom. Gavin is the director of the Center for Policy Impact and Global Health at Duke University in the state of North Carolina. Welcome, Gavin. Thanks, Joanne. Good to be with you. Gavin's co-author on the editorial, Greg Gonsalves, is here too. He's an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health in New Haven, Connecticut. Hi, Greg. Hi, Karen. And we also have Nicole Lurie. She's not an author of the editorial, but she's a lot of other things. Right now, she's a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and a strategic advisor to the foundation working on global vaccines, CEPI, where she's been leading the COVID response team since early January. And Nikki was assistant secretary for preparedness and response in the Department of Health and Human Services during the Obama administration. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Joanne. So, Listeners, know from the start that none of our panel thinks that the U.S. president has done a particularly good job. The same could be said for most of the public health community in the U.S. What I hope we'll get at today is, what about Trump's actions have been so bad? What allowed those actions to happen? And maybe we'll take a look at the future. How can the U.S. move forward instead of backward in trying to manage this pandemic? Let's start with Gavin Yamey. Gavin, the headline on your editorial called Donald Trump a political determinant of COVID-19. What does that mean? Well, I think that the science was clear and the scientific advice from the World Health Organization was also very clear, uh, certainly by the end of January, um, as to how countries should get ready and be prepared for the inevitable transmission of the new coronavirus. And then there was a divergence in how countries responded. And that divergence, I think, is highly political. Um, the Trump administration made a political decision to ignore uh, the guidance coming out of WHO, which was as early as January the 23rd, um, and really, obfuscated, delayed, denied that there was really even a problem. Uh, and this was on top, of course, of years of weakening the United States' capacity for dealing with an epidemical pandemic, even before COVID-19, which were also political decisions, political decisions to you know, eliminate or defund uh, programs that would have uh, helped the United States be better prepared, uh, for you know, cutting back on critical staffing and resource needs at the CDC, even before COVID-19 hit. Politics, of course, have been at play throughout COVID-19 here in the United States. Uh, we have seen, for example, research showing that the states that had Republican governors or that had large proportions of Trump voters were less likely to take action early. So if you were in one of those states, the stay-at-home orders came later. 
And we've seen politics at play, of course, with Trump essentially encouraging people in states with democratic governors to break lockdown, you know, essentially telling people to liberate states from stay-at-home orders, uh, but, but targeting democratic states. So it has been highly political. Uh, this pandemic and politics are completely interlinked. Greg, can you explain to our audience, which includes a lot of people not in the U.S., about the usual relationship in the U.S. between the states and the federal government when it comes to public health issues? Well, um, as you may know, we're a federal system where states and localities have a lot of control over how um, many different kinds of programs are rolled out, even if they're funded by the federal government, and public health is one of them. Uh, by and large, uh, what happens within the state's borders um, are up to the state uh, health department, the governor, uh, often cities like New York City, which is, is quite huge, have their own infrastructure for public health, and they have a commission of public health all, all to their own. Um, and so uh, we have 50 uh, states. Uh, if we add territories and, and dependencies, we have even more. We have a, a, a plethora of independent public health efforts happening all at the same time in the U.S. And so we don't have a unified uh, public health command. We have advisory bodies uh, that, like the CDC, we have the ability to um, uh, Deal with sort of people coming into the border. So Donald Trump and the federal government can 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 restrict entry into the United States under public health law. Um, but all the sort of rubber hits the road really at the state and local level. And how does that compare, Gavin, to the UK? So that's an interesting question. Obviously, you know, the, the United Kingdom, there are multiple countries. Um, it isn't federal in the same sense as that in the same way that Greg has described it. Um, a lot has been made uh, as to whether the United States' exceptionally poor response, arguably the weakest on a whole host of metrics, is because it's a large country, you know, with, with uh, 50 states, and it's difficult to coordinate between the federal government uh, and the states. But I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. Um, if you look at the, again, this divergence that I mentioned, after the WHO gave its guidance on the 23rd of January to get prepared. After on January the 30th, the WHO had issued a public health emergency uh, of international concern, a so-called fake, the very highest level. What you see is that uh, many countries took action and they were countries of very different kinds of politics, of different kinds of governance, uh, and, and, and a range of countries took that guidance seriously, you know, from New Zealand to Australia, Macau, Taiwan, uh, you know, a whole range, Singapore, South Korea, and several countries in Europe, of course, have done well, um, including Germany and Greece. All of those are countries or regions that have kept their death rates, the number of deaths per million of the population, low. And so I'm not convinced that the you know, the, the, about this argument that United States' federal system is what went wrong. I think what went wrong was an administration that was utterly unprepared, incompetent, and asleep at the wheel. Nikki, can you tell us about what would the states have been able to do? What would have happened had what was going on in the, the plans in the Obama administration continued on through the Trump administration? Well, first of all, you know, as Greg said, this is a federal system. And so states have the autonomy and responsibility to do what they want. 
but the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, issues guidance. And it's fair to say that most, if not all states, usually follow that guidance. And if they don't, it's usually because they have a pretty good reason or explanation for doing this. In this case, it was even difficult for the CDC to be allowed to issue guidance. But it's also fair to say that, you know, the Trump administration, I think all of us, saw this pandemic started well before WHO issued its public health emergency of international concern. Even for CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, we began a vaccine response on January 7th. Okay, so one could have seen it coming and the Trump administration could have chosen to listen to its scientists and public health experts who were concerned and begin to help states get ready, help healthcare systems and hospital systems get ready. During H1N1, for example, in the Obama administration, we helped the states put together sort of soup to nuts plans for how to respond so that they would be ready. And then in the federal system, when the states asked the US government for assistance in various aspects of things, the US government typically responds. And that would have been the case with material in the strategic national stockpile. It would have been the case that the US government could have activated production contracts for masks and personal protection equipment and ventilators and testing supplies and all of those things. And for reasons that are difficult to understand, they chose not to use the plans, the checklists, the processes that had been developed and refined through successive outbreaks, including H1N1 and Ebola and Zika. So there were really actually strong plans in place and it was largely a matter of wanting to wish this thing away and then uh, choosing not to follow all of those plans perhaps because they were developed by others. But I think we've come to understand this virus knows no borders and it knows no real political party. Now you co-authored an opinion piece in the Washington Post in late January, and you said that Trump had already failed his first test in dealing with the virus when he said the government had the coronavirus completely under control. Was that that he failed his first test it sounds like he failed the rest of them too. It seems to me as though they failed all the tests. At that time, we said it's a matter of uh, when, not if, because in fact, the virus had already spread far and wide and anyone who studies pandemics understood that one couldn't keep it out of a country by closing the borders or isolate or quarantine enough people to keep it from spreading. And then there was clearly a failure to act. You know. Even in a federalist system, it is the responsibility of government to plan for the worst and protect its citizens from the worst outcomes. And then you can scale back from there. But this government really failed to plan for the worst and protect its citizens from the worst outcomes, really by getting starting late and then by being so disorganized in most aspects of what it's done. Now, there was some response to the editorial uh, by readers. Uh, one reader wrote in that he noted that some states, and he, he mentioned New York State was very slow on ordering sheltering at home. And he said he can't blame Trump for that, for some of the individual state actions. Is that so? You'd like to see the government leading by example, the federal government leading by example. And in fact, what, what 
Trump did is sort of confuse people, number one, and then somewhat made it a loyalty test for Republican governors, you know, to stay open versus close. And I think, Greg, did you have something to add? Well, I, I, I think there is, there is some local complications in New York. I think there's been a rivalry between the, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, and the governor, Andrew Cuomo. I think there's been a rivalry between the Health and Hospitals Corporation led by Mitz Katz and the and New York City Department of Health. And yes, there was a delay in the response in New York City, um, but it's all relative, right? Um, yes, we could have avoided um, probably tens of thousands uh, of infections in New York City, but the, the disaster on the federal level is national in scope. Um, and I also think, you know, we've been talking about red states, blue states, but, you know, um, Governor Hogan in Maryland, Governor Baker in um, Massachusetts, Governor DeWine in Ohio did early, locksta early lockdowns, uh, even though they were Republicans, uh, part of President Trump's party. And so uh, I think while people sort of uh, who are loyal to the president sort of followed his uh, bad advice on, on how to deal with the epidemic, there are notable exceptions uh, in at least three states. And, and there were Democrats uh, in, in a few places that did the wrong thing, but in general, when you start putting things into perspective, it, as um, Andrew Slavitt, who was uh, President Obama's former head of, of CMS said, this is the greatest public health failure in a century. Uh, and I don't think it was an understatement. And at some point, the states were ending up being pitted against the federal government. The example that comes to mind for me was when, uh, was it Massachusetts that ordered some PPEs and had it snatched away from them by the federal government? Well, I think that there were failures there on a number of levels. First, what the federal government did is tell the states they were on their own and in some sense first pitted them against one another. So they all found themselves in bidding wars or most of them found themselves in bidding wars essentially with one another, um, bidding up the price of all of the stuff uh, that was in short supply, which is just a situation that didn't want to happen. In previous emergencies during the Obama administration, for example, what we did is recognize that lots of people were double and triple ordering uh, supplies out of fear and because they weren't sure if somebody could deliver. And there were all kinds of supplies stuck somewhere in the supply chain and distribution system. So rather than say to everybody, hey, you're on your own, what we did was say to all of the manufacturers and suppliers, um, we're gonna ask you to tell us confidentially where this stuff is. Uh, we're going to look and see if there are places that it's misallocated. And if it's misallocated, we're going to ask you to reallocate. In this case, the government, the federal government, took no such action at all. And then in the end, when stuff was in really short supply, yes, FEMA had started ordering materials as well, and then used the Defense Production Act and its authorities to get supplies out from under what states had ordered. Yeah, and the other example that comes to mind was, uh, which was one of the states actually had to, um, or ordered PPEs on its own. I, I guess it was Maryland ordered its own from Korea and hid it when it came in so that the feds couldn't get it. I mean, could that ever happen, Gavin, in, in the UK? I mean, that was, uh, there were many examples of that. Um, and I think uh, that speaks to what, what Nikki was saying of, of a federal government that hadn't adequately prepared and that wasn't adequately responding. I mean, it was very clear, um, well ahead of the large surge in cases that we were going to need to scale up um, testing, contact tracing, uh, personal protective equipment, 
uh, surge capacity for hospitals, all of these pieces that should have been put in place um, and that other countries were able to do. The UK obviously didn't do that either. And I think there are some really striking parallels uh, between the, the UK and the US responses, right? Two of the worst responses on earth. The UK, as you know, now has the highest uh, death rate on earth from COVID-19. And the US is up there uh, with the countries that have done the worst uh, on the death rate. And in both cases, the countries appear to kind of turn inwards. I mean, uh, you know, these are clearly uh, Brexit Britain and, and Trump's America, clearly, clearly countries that have turned inwards um, in a very nationalistic way that have kind of retreated from multilateralism, both ignored the WHO and there were even UK officials on record as saying, you know, WHO advice is for poor countries. Uh, and there was sort of a sense from both countries that it kind of wouldn't happen here. Um, uh, and, and in both countries, of course, literally the government let the virus run rampant instead of treating it as a public health emergency instead of, instead of really following the WHO advice to test, 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 to identify every single case, you know, isolate cases, conduct, uh, contact tracing, um, use quarantine for people exposed, get your health workers ready with equipment. Uh, they did none of that. So you saw the same kinds of horrifying, morally disgraceful shortages of personal protective equipment in both UK and US health workers. At one point, of course, in the United States, the CDC literally included in its, in its formal advice the notion that uh, health workers should use a bandana if they didn't have a proper N95 mask. I mean, that moral disgrace uh, in both countries is one of many moral paired catastrophes, I think. Kevin, in your editorial, uh, you and Greg note that Trump's most dangerous act was setting his supporters against the state. And uh, you wrote that editorial, I think, at a time when not, not, not too long ago, when he was egging on his supporters who were complaining to their governors about uh, sheltering at home and some of the other restrictions. Do you, is that still his most dangerous act, setting his supporters against the states? I mean, where do you begin? It's just been danger after danger after danger. I mean, this is literally a man who I, I feel is endangering American lives. Ironically, the US president is essentially a threat to particularly black people's lives right now in the United States, fomenting uh, violence, condoning violence against black people. We have a out of control militarized police force um, that is brutalizing black people and he is encouraging that, has always encouraged that. So where to begin in uh, how dangerous a human being he is, I don't know. I, mean, I think it's fair to say too that he's had a lot of accomplices in this. Um, you know, nobody's really spoken up in his party. Um, and in fact, um, uh, Mitch McConnell, Tom Cotton, um, Lindsey Graham, all of, uh, all of his uh, senior leadership in, in the party who could act as a, a, a moderating force on him have not done so. Um, and while well, you've had a couple of governors like Mike DeWine, Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan, um, who've gone their own way, by and large, the party is just as responsible for what's been happening as, as the president, because we, we may have uh, a powerful executive in, in the United States, 
but we're not helpless in terms of our uh, other political leaders, but they have in fact sort of abdicated their responsibility to put the brakes on this because, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in June now. Um, our response to the epidemic has not gotten better. Uh, testing is a little bit better, but contact tracing and isolation are still not scaled up. We don't have the support, economic and social, to keep people uh, sheltering in place who can do it. Um, we're nowhere near getting ready for a second wave of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 that could, could appear at any time or later this fall. And so it's an ongoing catastrophe that um, it, it is really the president's fault, but also the fault of the rest of the leadership of his party, which have basically been too afraid of him to, to basically challenge him, even on the most basic uh, facts of science and public health. Okay, for any of, of you three, is there anything he's done right? <laughs> okay. The silence is kind of deafening, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, he, it's a tough call. You know, fortunately, at least for some time, he's relied on Tony Fauci, who is a terrific scientist and a terrific spokesperson. But he's made it very, very difficult for his science agencies, including scientists like Dr. Fauci at NIH, to really uh, speak as, as freely in and as unfettered a way as they either want to or should. Beyond that, it's a tough call to think about um, some things that might have gone right. I think one thing that they're doing right right now, in some sense, is putting a lot of money into the development of vaccines and therapeutics. Having said that, um, they should have started months before they did. And Gavin, you had something to add? Oh, I mean, just to echo Nikki's point, it's very hard to find a silver lining right now in any of the Trump administration's actions. Um, uh, BADA has indeed been uh, investing in COVID-19 vaccine development. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, he, Trump continues to interfere in all sorts of ways. You know, the CDC, for example, it's now widely reported was issuing guidance on the relaxation of stay-at-home orders and the opening up of America. And it was going to include clear language to religious institutions, churches in particular, um, on you know how to open up safely. And the Trump administration squashed that, of course. Uh, Rick Bright, the, who was head of the agency that oversaw COVID-19 vaccine development, uh, says he was fired because he was questioning Trump's promotion of you know, hydroxychloroquine. You know, there has been so much political interference um, that is getting in the way of the response, and that continues to this day. So how much of the failed U.S. response is Trump's fault? I mean, he said several times in several different situations that he didn't take responsibility for one thing or another, that it was the states, that it was somebody else. How much of the failed U.S. response is his fault? Look, I mean, I think it's unprecedented. You know, I, I think we can be uh, bipartisan about this. I don't think President Obama, President Bush, uh, President Clinton, or, or the, the first President Bush would have botched this um, uh, response in, in quite the way that Donald Trump has. It, it's also because he's created a, a situation in which um, you you go along to get along with his administration. It's built on flattery and cajoling him to get to do even the most basic tasks of governance. Uh, and, you know, part of me also wants to, to know after this is all over, 
where where have been you know um, Dr. Redfield, uh, you know Debbie Burks, who I've known for a long time, seems to have been sort of indulging in sort of um, uh, some flattery of Trump and and amplifying some of the president's worst instincts. So like there's a it's a it's a massive state failure led by the president, but aided and embedded by members of Congress and also people in the administration who uh, could you know maybe Nikki has some insight here, but you know Secretary Azar, uh, uh, Director Redfield, others could step down and say no, I, I think this is a mess and and I can't do it any anymore. But um, nobody has shown any leadership from top to bottom throughout any of this. Well, I would totally agree with you, Greg, and I might go a step or two beyond that and. I've wondered myself why senior public health officials across government, especially career officials, don't all stand up together and make some clear statements about this. And I think there are two things at play. One is that I think some people feel as though, well, maybe they can do some damage prevention, keep it from being worse than it already is or worse than it could be. And the other is that for an awful lot of career officials, um, this prior situations with the whistleblower, um, and not Rick Bright, but the, the whistleblower in the intelligence agency, and the way folks were treated during the impeachment, created an absolute atmosphere of fear. So I've had calls from a number of folks inside of government who have said, hey, I just want to talk something over with you. I think I've been asked to cross a line. I saw something happened. Should I go to the IG? What should I do? And then they'll stop and they'll say, I'm a single parent. I have to support my family. I can't take the risk of death threats. I can't take the risk of losing my job. And that's a terrifying situation to be in because I like to think of our career public servants as our ultimate sort of last line of defense. And what I've come to understand through this is that even that has been pretty systematically dismantled. Well, my next question was going to be, what, what do we do going forward? What do people in the public health community now in, in the government and outside the, of the government do now? But it sounds like it's a, if you're in the government, at least, it's a pretty scary place to be. So maybe I'll ask, what do people outside the government do now who are concerned about this and who have the knowledge of what should happen next? Well, I'm not sure that all is lost in the federal government either. You know, there are an awful lot of people who know what to do. There are people who still want to do the right thing, who understand there was a plan. There should be a plan for the second wave. It's not rocket science to figure out what should be in that plan. And I think a number of federal officials can help to put that plan in place. They also need to be reaching out and uh, public health officials in states and the public in health, the public in general, needs to be asking about the plan, demanding that plan. People outside of government can talk about what the elements are of it. Um, and Congress can find ways to continue to help support it. But we have to think about very different mechanisms of accountability for progress against executing that plan um, than there's been to date. Yeah, and it's a little bit complicated because of the outbreak of police violence in Minneapolis and now the multiple demonstrations across the US, which also are a public health problem, by the way. Um, but we can do two things at once. And I th think Nikki's right. There are plenty of talented officials within our government still who want to do the right thing, know exactly how to do it. 
it's incumbent upon us to, to get to our elected leaders in, in the House and the Senate in the United States uh, on both sides of the aisle and, and keep up the pressure. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump is going to have a midnight conversion and change his ways, but we've got to put some pressure on um, uh, our elected leaders uh, before we get to the fall and we have a, a second wave that's even worse than the first. And that goes for the governors too and local elected leaders. You've seen some really talented, terrific people step up and the more we can support and empower them to do the right thing, the better off we will be. I think we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of a action at the local level uh, out from our mayors and governors. And you know, where I live right now, I'm quite lucky. We've had a very activist, very progressive mayor in the city where I am. Uh, in Durham, and our our governor's been terrific as well. I mean, we have a Republican state with a Democratic governor. Um, you know, early stay-at-home orders, really clear public health guidance and advice. And our city, as well, has really been ramping up contact tracing. Has been um, you know good on communications, etc. So so there's plenty going on at the local level. Greg, you've talked about something called the politics of care. What exactly do you mean by that? So um, my colleague Amy Kipchinski and I wrote a piece, uh, actually three pieces in the Boston Review over the past few months, talking about sort of the deeper roots of uh, COVID-19 and this crisis in sort of American history uh, and uh, health disparities that were uh, buffeting many of the communities hardest hit by COVID-19 for decades and generations now. Um, and if we're going to get out of this um, better than we uh, uh, were before it all started, is that we've got to rethink about uh, how we deal with public health, sort of the social safety net and healthcare in the United States. I mean, Medicare for all is one piece of it, but, but um, it's not just in the healthcare sector where we need to sort of rebuild and reinforce uh, our systems of, of care and a new politics of care. Uh, remember, um, many of the communities we're talking about have uh, health disparities in diabetes and, and other chronic diseases in infectious diseases like HIV, um, which are due to sort of systemic underinvestments in public health in their communities, the social and economic determinants of health that have, that have um, disenfranchised them, not just um, from uh, uh, economic uh, citizenship in the United States, but really puts them at a disadvantage in terms of education, uh, uh, support when they're unemployed or if they're sick, and so we've talked about building up a national community health corps that starts to rebuild uh, American public health from the ground up, very much like the World Works Progress Administration under Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Depression, where we, we take the unemployed, the millions of them in the United States, put them together to build better community health um, so that the next time we have a pandemic that comes around, we're not sort of left uh, as defenseless as Gavin and I sort of pointed out in our article, no matter what the political leadership is in DC. Well, that sounds like a good and hopeful moment to end on, that, that something like that is possible and people are thinking about it already. So thank you, Gavin Yamey from Duke University, Greg Gonsalves of Yale University, and Nikki Lurie from Harvard. For more of BMJ's COVID-19 coverage, check out bmj.com slash coronavirus. You'll find all of the BMJ's coronavirus coverage there available for free. And meanwhile, audience, I want to thank you for your patience. I know we had some birds in the, in the background for part of this. Well, that's broadcasting in the age of the new coronavirus. We're doing other COVID stories in our podcasts. Check the new coronavirus data in the talk evidence episodes and how health providers are coping in our well-being podcasts. 
I'll be back doing more of these U.S.-themed podcasts too, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, I'm Joanne Silberner. Thanks for listening.